Welcome, everyone, to Seek, Go, Create. This is your host, Tim Winders. I'm kind of bundled up today. I'm actually in a colder climate, and in two days, we're starting up the RV Theo here, and we're going to be heading south, going to southern Utah for a good portion of the winter, where I'm hopeful that it is warmer. So I'm so glad you're here. This is where we have deep conversations about things like we're going to talk about today, which is money and especially how it relates to God's kingdom and spiritual things. You know, it's so interesting. So many times when we uh, talk about money in a what would be a church setting or a Christian setting, it just gets weird. Well, today we're going to take the weird out of it with the guest we have. I'll get to that in just a moment. I want to continue reminding you about the valuable resource that we have over at SeekGoCreate.com, just with all the notes Anything we mentioned today, any training or, or resources that our guest uh, has to share, all of that you'll be able to find the links over at SeekGoCreate.com underneath this episode. And uh, outline form, links, timestamps, all of those things. So make sure you go to SeekGoCreate.com. Today we have Leo Marte as our guest, and he runs an investment advisory firm that provides personal CFO services to Christian executives. I love that target. They help you plan for the future, invest your assets, and manage your taxes. Man, the big the big items in the financial arena. And he does it all so you can honor God and build generational wealth. There's a lot more to his bio, but Leo, welcome to Seek Go Create. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me today. I'm really uh, excited to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here because I, I love... I I like conversations about money. Some people get all nervousy about it and all that, especially in church world. But uh, but we're going to have some fun with it today. Before I do that, though, uh, I only covered just a brief kind of clip of the bio. You've got some a lot of three letter items that attach to your name and things like that. We'll get into some of that later on. But uh, but if you and I just bump into each other and we kind of have just sort of met, and I ask you what you do, what do you typically tell people? Well, I usually tell people that I help Christians manage money wisely and build generational wealth. And those are the two main things that I focus on in my day-to-day activities and my business at Bundan Advisors. Uh, the manage money wisely is kind of that short and medium-term focus where, you know, we help you anything from cash flow all the way through investing. Uh, and then building generational wealth is that part of, you know, transferring values, which is so, such such a difficult part of the wealth journey, you know, because passing down assets and money is not that hard, uh, but passing down values so that your family, you know, is united in one vision of how uh, this blessings from God should be uh, managed going forward is, is the tough part. Yeah, but Christians are supposed to be poor. So so why would we be <laughs> concerned about this? Well, that is a big misconception, Tim, but I'm glad that you bring this up because let's go ahead and go there. <laughs> Because wealth has been part of the journey throughout the scriptures since the beginning. Uh, you know, we see wealth playing a very important part in the story of the patriarchs in the beginning of the people of Israel. Uh, God talks a lot about money, not only in the New Testament, where most people know that Jesus uses a lot of parables to talk about money there. Uh, but we also see a lot of examples and conversations about money in the Old Testament, weave in the story of God's people. Uh, because God has a lot in store for, for his people. And a big part of that is how they interact. Their relationship with money says a lot about their relationship with God. They're very closely connected. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm just kind of badgering you a little bit because 
I see this come up all the time. You know, I work with leaders. I look with people. I work with people that run organizations, and it's almost always we've got to address this. I don't even want to call it an elephant in the room, but it's just what is your paradigms? What is your tapes about? Money. So I, I think before I go into kind of how we can kind of go through those layers and all that, why don't you let's back up and tell me a little bit about Leo's background as far as money. Did you grow up in a wealthy family or middle class or lower class, whatever it was? And what were your thoughts about money growing up? Well, I would describe my family as a lower middle class uh, background. Uh, both my parents were. Uh, went to college, uh, but they did so outside of the U.S. Uh, so my family is an immigrant family. Uh, they came to the U.S. and they weren't able to sort of land in the same level uh, occupationally that they had, you know, back in the in the home country. So I grew up, you know, with uh, sort of all my basic needs met. You know, never missed a meal, thank God. You know, never went. Uh, without clothes or without shelter. Uh, so really blessed uh, that I was able to be provided for all my basic needs. But we certainly didn't have extra money to burn to have lavish vacations or to buy luxury items. Uh, you know, when I went to college, uh, was my first interaction with just managing m my own money, right? Figuring out how to spend money, how to uh, figure out how to pay for college. My parents were not very knowledgeable about that. So I had to figure that out on my own. And then after I graduated college, I started working at a large investment firm. Uh, and through my journey in that particular career path, I learned a ton about professional money management as well as personal finance. So that's kind of what got me into this track. You know, after 12, 13 years of working in that environment, I felt, you know, led to leave that role and start a firm that was focused, you know, on Christians. Uh, so that's kind of like my sort of the 10,000 foot view of, of my journey. And then in the midst of that, got a lot of education, went to business school, got my certified financial planner designation, you know, had all sorts of licenses that allowed me to talk to people about investing uh, and got to serve uh, clients with very interesting stories and a lot of diversity. Yeah, but but here's the thing though, I, I, and all of that stuff I think we're going to address. But but even with education, even people that know stuff, many times they have to work through things. Either I'll give you like a, a simple one that I knew growing up: you better clean your plate because there are poor people that would need that food. And I'm just like that, that's programming that we have. So, and I mean, you know, be as transparent as you like, but what are some things that you had to overcome that we mm -hmm. all do just about the way you think about money? Because I, I love all the knowledge and education. I, I get all that, but I'm sure that there's something that you kind of had to go, you know, this is something that was a bit of a challenge for me that I needed to work through. Well, you know, despite my background, as I mentioned, coming from more of a lower middle class family, uh, my parents had a very much an abundant mentality. Mm. Uh, they never really taught us out of scarcity. Uh, they told us to be smart, to be, uh, you know, wise stewards of money. Uh, you know, my parents were divorced and remarried, so I had sort of two different households to kind of model my money behaviors around. And luckily, you know, both my parents were very good with money in terms of how they managed their own. And, you know, I think that some of those things that you mentioned are not necessarily bad things. The problem is when we mix uh, 
some attitudes or or lessons that are carried through generationally with a sort of a deterministic view of money. And and I think that's really what I try to tackle when I work with people is, you know, what is your money mindset? Like what is money to you and what is the relationship that you have with money? Because you can come from any sort of the denomination background, part of the country, other countries, and everybody seems to have a kind of a different perspective on money. And this has been the case since the creation of the world, by the way. This is not just a U.S. thing. This is not just a, you know, 2020s thing. Uh, this has been happening since the beginning of time. Uh, so I think that those conversations are really helpful because they help people sort of acknowledge the fact that they do come with a programming. You do come to the table with a formatting in your brain. And if you come with a formatting that says, hey, abundance, progress, advancement, you have a very different outcome than scarcity, conserve, shame. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I love how you worded that. So were you in, uh, was there a strong faith when you were growing up? Did you you know, study, you know, any of the scriptures, the Bible, or did that come later in life? At what point did you start uh, your spiritual walk? Well, I grew up with my mom, um, and she uh, became a believer shortly before I was born. So I I grew up in the church and uh, learned to read the scriptures very early in my life, maybe seven, eight years old. And I remember, you know, my mom used to have a friend that used to come, and she was full-time ministry, but she used to come to our house and used to be able to, you know, read the, the Bible to my sister and me while my mom was at work because my mom had to have multiple jobs. And, you know, I I started learning about the Old Testament stories that, you know, for a seven, eight-year-old boy, you know, very impactful, you know, this big, big God making, you know, miraculous interventions and demonstrating and showing his power to his people. And that was very attractive to me. That sort of kind of captured my attention and then of course you know Sunday school and as you keep growing you know sermons you know they develop your maturity and understanding of the scriptures but I was really really blessed to have exposure to the scriptures very early in my life and that has shaped a lot of my views on money too uh, even as an adult now yeah did you uh one thing that always fascinates me is we partially because of my journey and we also kind of bust this up a little bit here at seat go create we we have this tagline called redefining success i believe that at some point in people's journey they kind of have to go through this what does success mean to me what does it look like things like that and a lot of times it's wrapped around what the world might look at as failure or something like that um, is is there a time along your way, college into business or anything like that, that you face something that you look back now and go, wow, that was a really defining moment that helped me with my current thought process or something like that? I mean, we were talking before we kind of hit record a little bit about a situation that I've been through. Anything like that that we can learn from? You know, when I was in the, in, in the corporate career path, uh, I – very much had a focus, you know, early in my career that I wanted to get as high up the ladder as I possibly could. And of course, have a great job, make tons of money and have a lot of fun. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, that that's, that's a great, that's a great motivation that that's what motivates you. Uh, What I started noticing was that the higher I got in the ladder, and the more close I was looking at the people and the interactions and the things that were happening, I realized that, being in greater positions of influence in that ladder, in higher positions of authority, 
didn't it actually made the job more stressful it made the job more difficult to manage a lot of people struggled with mental health issues uh the stress the the pay was great but the stress was also great uh and you know your ability to actually influence and do things differently were also very limited you think that the higher you go the more power you have mm-hmm. but in reality there's always somebody who's more powerful than you that's telling you how to do stuff and and when you and when when I started realizing kind of the behind the scenes and looking at all these interactions, I realized, man, you know, I don't think this is where God's calling me to be. Not because it's necessarily bad or wrong. I mean, there's a lot of great people that I knew, people who mentored me, invested a lot in my development. Uh, but I started to notice that it's not exactly what I thought it was. And the closer I looked, the more I saw an opportunity for me to go out and do something different, something that was more aligned with my belief system and gave me that level of freedom and flexibility with my personal life that I desired. And that was kind of the breaking point for me to say, okay, I need to figure out how to go create my own thing. You know, that going back to the seek, go create, create, right? Uh, I, I was seeking something. I went and saw what it was. And then I said, okay, I need to go create something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So was it tough though? I mean, you know, listen, a lot of people that are going, let's, let's just call it the corporate path. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've trained for it. They think they've gotten their degrees and all for it. And so some people, you know, consider there's, you know, there's, there's a sunk cost that's involved with it, or there's some cost that involved, uh, how what, were, were you, um, did you have a family? Were you married at the time? Were you single? What, what were you going through? But here's the reason why is because I know, that a lot of people latch on to whatever they're currently doing and say, I can't change. And I think that filters into their money and different things like that. So can you give a little bit, a little bit deeper of what mentally maybe you were going through at that time? Because I know it could be challenging. Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, I was working for someone who I respect quite a bit, even today. Um, and uh, at the, uh, she was a, she's a mentor to me and, and if she's listening to this, she'll know that I say it with the, you know, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, you know, when I, uh, when I had my son, uh, my, my wife and I got married in 2015 and, uh, my son was born around summer of 2017. And when he was born, you know, a couple of things started changing in my heart. You know, before, uh, you know, we were both working, uh, we all both had busy jobs and, uh, we're making good money and my son, uh, my son is born and then my wife and I, uh, you know, had the conversation about, you know, hey, what does it look like for us to move forward? And, you know, my wife is really passionate about staying home. And that made a sort of a change in the dynamic of our, of our day to day because now my wife was with my son full time at home and, you know, I literally with him all day and, and then I was at work and I almost felt like, man, I don't want to miss out on some of these things. Like, you know, she's seeing all the, all the smiles and the walking and all these, all, all these things that are going on in my home. Uh, and I'm, and I'm working here a lot, you know, during the day in a, in a high stress job. Uh, with a lot of responsibilities and feeling like, hey, I don't want to spend the next 10, 20, 30 years of my life doing this and then missing out all the stuff that's going out there. So I made myself some boundaries around my job and my boss hated it, hated the fact that, hey, when the day, when the market's closed and my career taken care of, I'm out of here. I'm not going to stay here until six, seven o'clock at night like I used to. I'm sorry. I just don't have the the bandwidth at home to do that anymore. I want to spend time with my son before he goes to sleep. So that was kind of maybe, and I hadn't thought about the bigger picture about just career in general in corporate America. That was sort of like the first 
situation that made me think about what I wanted to design my life on, right? And if my if my life was going to look a certain way, I had to make certain decisions to make those boundaries happen. And that was the first instance where I realized, oh, there is a slight turn of direction in the path here. And I realized that many years later that that was perhaps the beginning of the whole thing. Yeah, it's like you opened the door. It's like you you weren't totally uh, 110% going to you know tie into the work situation and you started shifting yeah I, very similar for me is interesting though my first I, when I came out of Georgia Tech I went to, I went to work at Bell South I'd had a company in while I was at Georgia Tech but then I said you know what I'm getting married let me just you know see what it's like to go work for somebody I went to work for a company and like day one the manager that I had came out and told me not to contact HR on work time to talk about my insurance that I needed to do that on my personal time. And it was like something immediately snapped. I said, Hmm, I'm not sure this relationship's going to last long. Now it took me nine years to leave, but it's just like these little incremental things. And I, I agree with you when we, when all of a sudden you have children, I think it changes something for a lot of us. And you, you mentioned it, it changed something in your heart. You know, it's kind of like we, we kind of look more at even what God, the way God looks at us now, we kind of appreciate it and and understand that better uh, yeah i think what i'd love to do leo is is talk maybe about some general things to begin with before we kind of go into details as to you know some things specifically for some executives and leaders and people that i know you've got some good resources for but what are some things that you see as hindrances to your words to, uh, you know, to handle money wisely and begin building generational wealth. What are some barriers, hindrances to that that you see, not just in your line of work, but just in general and kind of what we see in our culture? I think the number one issue that we have in our culture, but I'm going to va- I'm going to narrow down specifically to Christians, uh, especially Christians that are in kind of a middle, upper middle class, maybe upper class situation mm-hmm. is because those are typically the people that I end up working with. Those are the people that have the most financial complexity is uh, how they manage their cash flow. And it's a it's a it's a it's a constant battle between how much do I enjoy today and live you know, in terms of inflation of lifestyle today based on what I'm making and how much I am preserving and saving for the future. And when, so I've seen that kind of the full spectrum, right? I work with young rising executives in their thirties and, you know, some uh, more seasoned senior executives that are close to retirement, you know, 50 plus crowd. And inevitably the one thing that always happens, no matter your age, your background, how smart your money you are, is that most people don't save enough to be able to sustain their lifestyle in perpetuity after they're done working. And, you know, a lot of people that come to me in their 50s, that's one of the first things that we start working on is, hey, you know, you're making a very generous salary. You're making this, you know, beautiful package with bonus stock compensation. But in goes the money. And when I do your cash flow analysis at the end of the year, yeah, you're putting money to your 401k, but the money you're putting there is nowhere near enough to cover the level of spending that you have today. So one of two things are going to happen, right? We're either going to reduce that level of spending and it's going to be a little bit painful because you're not going to have that same lifestyle, but you will be able to sustain your new lifestyle for the rest of your life. 
or you're going to live under this very high lifestyle. You're going to get to retirement and you're going to be forced to downgrade. And it's going to be even more uncomfortable because now you have 30, 40 years of living at this level and you're going to have to get down to this level. Uh, so I would rather you do that work before you get there so that you can have a rational spending plan, a good investment program so that you can have a more even experience through the, you know, through your life. Um, and I think that that happens to people who are making eighty, ninety thousand dollars and people who are making seven hundred thousand dollars. It is a common issue because we live particularly in the U.S. So, you know, this is contextual happens in other countries because globalization. But here we live in a country that is very much focused on consumption. So the more money we make, the more reasons there are to spend. <laughs> uh, and it is very hard to not inflate your lifestyle as your earnings go up during your lifetime. Uh, but then the converse is also true. I mean, if you're able to manage that very early on, you're going to create wealth that you have no idea what you're going to do with later on in life. I mean, I have ideas on how to help you do that. But if you do that early on, you can gain a certain level of freedom and independence that you would not be able to do if you have a high cost lifestyle throughout your professional years. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It actually reminds me I was interviewed on a podcast recently i'm going to mention the name so that they can include the link it was the pantry podcast and the topic that they wanted to talk to me about because of my business background and things like that was just how american consumerism has mm -hmm. this is my words not the title has infected the church and the body and things like that and and i want to go back to a word you used earlier because i love this word but sometimes i think this word can cause some of the issues. The word abundance is such a great word. It's, I think, the name of your company even. Um, yeah. However, when you tie in the word abundance or that mindset with the spiritual aspect of it, with all that's been done with the prosperity gospel, and, and listen, just so you know, my theory is is that most Americanized churches are participating in the in the prosperity gospel because mm -hmm. they believe that God is there just to provide stuff. And then and then in America, you know, some other we have people listening from other countries, but you know, if there's a good healthy relationship with consumption in other countries we do it with a multiple of 10 in the United States because everything about our economic system is built on increase. In other words, there's, you know, if you have one television, you need five televisions. If you have one car, you need three cars. And, and I, I had to deal with that. I was making a lot of money, but I was spending all that money. And so I love what you're talking about. It's just a matter of, you know, adjusting your lifestyle. But my experience has been is that that is pretty tough for people to do. There's There's got to be a real shift. I was forced to do it because of what we went through. But what can people do practically to really begin doing it if they want to really start doing it? And just spend less is not really the answer people are looking for, truthfully. Yeah. I think that people need to start thinking about, you know, to what end are you – earning money and to what to what end or to what extent you're building wealth, right? Because if you have a goal, a target in your mind, you know, most people will make enormous sacrifices uh, if they have a high enough target that they want to hit, that they want, right? So, you know, we can go on stories of, you know, you falling in love with somebody 
you know, four states over. I mean, the amount of driving that you will do to date that person uh, in order to, to gain, you know, that, that to, to, to arrive at the, at the gates of marriage are unbelievable, right? If you have a big enough reason to save money, because otherwise you will not be able to afford something that is, that is life giving, that literally could threaten your life. You could do a lot of stuff if you have a big enough target in your mind. And I think before we even get into the purchases and the consumption, you need to, you need to sort out you know, what is it that gives your life satisfaction and what is it that is filling your heart? And then once you figure that part out, the consumption stuff is easy because the values are going to be your filter for your, your spending, right? Being smart with money doesn't mean buying cheap things, right? If you're going to be uh, doing a, a kitchen renovation and it is definitely within your budget and within your means to do so. You should buy good appliances. Please don't buy, <laughs> don't buy a hundred dollar fridge. It's not going to last you very long. <laughs> You're going to end up buying multiple fridges of our, of our decade instead of just buying one that does the job and does it well. And, you know, even, even my wife and I, we have slightly different perceptions of, of money because of our own backgrounds too. So my mom always taught me, you know, we're smart with money. We save, but when we buy things, we buy the best thing that we can buy within our means, right? And then my wife is the queen of a deal, you know? If she finds something that is like a conquest, right? Like she goes into a store and we need to get something. Like, what is the least amount of money that I need to pay in order to get this item? And then over the years, you know, we've been married now seven years, um, thanks be to God. And, you know, we have over time managed our expectations to kind of meet somewhere in the middle. So I used to be like, oh, I just want the absolute best there is. And, whoa, 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 hold on. Right. We don't have the budget for the absolute best. <laughs> you know, there are multiple options. We don't have to get the cheapest, but we need to sort of meet in the middle somewhere in order to make sure other things are taken care of. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a values conversation, Tim, rather than a purchase conversation. Because sometimes I leave those conversations feeling really frustrated. It's like, oh, you know, here it goes again. I wanted to buy the, you know, the $4,000 fridge and she wanted, you know, she brought me down to the 2001. But guess what? As I think about it afterwards, I'm thinking, you know what? She was right because who knows if we will need that, that money that I would have spent, overspent on that fridge. And I still got a great fridge and a great deal. What if that money is needed for something else, for a medical bill or for whatever, you know, down the road? And I have such a narrow vision in the moment because I want this item, right? And then she's helping, you know, keep it, keep me grounded. So when those value conversations happen first, then the consumption stuff is easy to sort out. You know, I used to like, certain things when I was younger in terms of like luxury items. And then over time I said, well, I would rather put money in my college savings account for my kids instead of buying me this thing, you know? So I think over time your attitudes also tend to change and and that's okay too. You know, there's no one right or wrong way of doing this, but I think that we should strive for being smart with money and, you know, make up proud with the choices that we make. You know, if God were to look at our budget, would he be proud of the way that we're managing what we have? And that's ultimately what matters. Yeah, because you can know where someone's heart is by where they put their treasure and where they spend their money and things like that. There's one thing you brought up I want to say that, you know, you mentioned you've been married seven years. I'm at 34, and there was a statement that you said. I want you to just 
used this statement over and over again, and that was, she was right. If you just use that statement over and over again, you will have a long and prosperous marriage. She was right. Even if it doesn't seem correct, just say that because it just it makes me. And, and over time, I can guarantee you she'll be right many more times than you will be. That is probably as a wise, wise counsel that I'll take to my grave. Very good. Now, now well, one of the things you brought up, and I, I, this is something that I recognize of myself. And, man, it came up in a podcast that I was interviewing someone who – Anyway, I won't, I won't go into detail, but I, I recognize that I had an addiction to more that mm-hmm. I just, you know, and I think a lot of, we'll call it the consumerist, you know, culture, society. It's like, you know, if I've got one nice gray sweatshirt like I'm wearing right now, you know what? I need it in every color. No, I don't. And uh, and one thing that's interesting now is that we have a limit. I'm very limited on my space in the closet here in the RV. I'm holding my hands about 12 inches wide for anyone that can visually see this. And so I really do have a bit of a zero-sum capacity. And the problem that a lot of us have is that you've got the big walk-in closets and you can just keep piling stuff in it. So when I put stuff in, it's got to be something that I'm going to wear, and it's got to be something of quality. So I do spend, you know, 100, 120 bucks on a really nice sweatshirt and the shoes that I wear are shoes that I really like and all that, and a little bit pricey, but they last a long time, and it's good quality and stuff like that. So I get all that. And I think, Tim, you know, in terms of even, so so I'll, uh, you know, maybe maybe to kind of step out of the mosaic that you just gave us, let's kind of break this down a little bit. Um, You know, as an advisor, I, I... you know, I, I pay attention to a lot of what my clients tell me and the people that I work with. And there are a couple things in what you said that I thought, you know, really st- stood out to me. Number one, um, space dictates spending patterns. And that's very true. Uh, so when you're tempted to have a bigger space, the space needs more things in it. The bigger the, your house, the more furniture you're going to have to buy in order to make it look nice. So if you're able to control the amount of space that you can live with, you know, humans are biologically oriented to capturing as much space as we possibly can. That's why we consume every resource we have, and that's why we spend all the money we get, is because we have a biological imperative to sort of, you know, consume our entire environment. So the more that you can be self-disciplined about maintaining that in a rational way, the easier all those decisions are going to make. Because if you want to buy a new couch, well, guess what? You're going to have to get rid of the one you have because you can't fit it. <laughs> but if you have three living rooms, you're going to have to get three nice couches and, you know, on on and on it goes. Uh, but the second thing that I wanted to point out and what you mentioned that I thought was also interesting is it's – and I don't know if you noticed this. So I don't want to call you out I- improperly here. But I felt like you were also trying to justify the reason why you got yourself a nice hoodie or a nice pair of shoes. And I think that also speaks to a lot of the programming that we as believers have received over time, depending on your faith background and the church you went to and all those things, where nice things are necessarily correlated with excess. And I think that's a relationship that we need to start breaking down because, um, yes, there are some of us that are, you know, called to be in a situation where that's just not an option. And there's a ton of people in the world that just don't have access to the resources that we have here. 
but to go from there and and try to sort of it's almost like self justification of well you know I got this but but here's why don't don't judge me don't feel like I am I am a spendthrift or like I'm wasting money and I think that that's a very common um, a very common thought process as I work with worked with many believers for years that we start to deconstruct and say no it's okay for you to have a nice car it's okay for you to have a nice jacket or a nice pair of pants or whatever it is that you have, right? It's all a matter of balance. Are you buying this because you want other people to look at you and all these other sort of sinful patterns and it's outside of your budget and you're living to consume so that you can impress other people? Or you just like having a nice watch and that's okay to buy too, you know? So <laughs> so I think sometimes that happens. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to talk about that too while you were at it. Yeah, no, that's good because I listen, I do know that growing up there are some money tapes, some money paradigms that you know, we were I guess middle middle class ish. Both my parents were educators. And I didn't realize, in fact, it's one of the reasons I went to Georgia Tech to become an engineer because I thought engineers would do do real well in the mid eighties was because when I found out how much my parents made, I went, gosh, I want to make a lot more than that. And But a lot of it was we were programmed, we wanted to do well, but not too well. We wanted to do okay relative to people around us, but we didn't want to stick our heads up too much because, you know, there's that whole thing of... And so, yeah, yeah you're probably correct. There probably is a um, what I call a humility statement that I will add often to something just to maybe smooth over the fact that, yeah, I've reached this level, but, you know, I've also gone through this and done this and all too. So I think that's, I think it's very important that we recognize that. I think another thing you brought up that's interesting that I don't, I don't think I've dealt with this, but I see it in people. And that is people that have these, I'll call them damaged souls that they attend to, they attempt to placate that with, the buying of stuff or name brands or things like that. I like nice stuff that I like that fit me well, that, that lasts and all that. I don't really care about the brand on it, but there are some people that they, my wife and I went to a mall recently. It's the, when we're recording this, it's kind of in the holiday season and we're just walking through going, you know, man, there's a lot of stuff in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of stuff that's available for people to purchase and, I like what you kind of brought up, too, is that, you know, we live in 354 square feet. We don't have a lot of space to store a lot of things. So it means we have to make a decision when we acquire something. And I think I think that's kind of it helps us. I'll just say that way. But uh, I, I want to shift slightly and and wherever you want to go with this is fine. But at the time of recording this, I'll go ahead and put a timestamp. We're in early December and. There's a lot that's going on. We've been talking kind of micro. I want to kind of go macro for just a second here. There's just a lot going on in what we would call the investment world with markets, cryptocurrencies, with real estate. I I stay sort of up to date on all of those things. Um, What can you share? I know you can't give specific investment advice uh, here, but what can you just share just about in general what you see going on in the market your take on it, what should, you know, average Joe, what should we be mindful of and watch and things like that? Is that, is that a fair question? Yes, of course. Uh, you know, when I look at the 
this year has been a very challenging year. Uh, you know, if you look at even um, 2020, when uh, you know when the we were dealing with COVID and you know the markets were cratering, uh, the markets recovered very quickly, and we actually ended up having a, a, pre, a fairly decent year in 2020 in spite of lockdowns and all that stuff. Uh, but we're going through an adjustment period in our economic history. Uh, you know, we have been supporting our economy since the 2008 crisis with easy money and low interest rates. Uh, that has created a lot of growth, but a lot of that growth has also uh, caused some other issues like inflation. And, you know, all the, during the decade of 2020, 2010 to 2020, there was this constant conversation like, hey, you know, we're putting a lot of money into this quantitative easing program and we're putting a lot of money into all these in the financial system. And this is going to create inflation and inflation never came. So people started feeling overconfident, thinking that inflation would never come, that somehow we had broken the rules of economic history and that we had gotten away with murder. Right. We had pumped all this money into the system and it was fine. And then uh, COVID forced a lot of things to happen. Uh, it, it unfortunately costed a lot of human lives, which has in and of itself significant impact on the economy and the job market and you know all these things. But then beyond that, it starts rocking some of the foundational economic relationships that our country has and that individuals have in the system. So, for example, you know, we have relied on, you know, zero percent interest rates to buy increasingly bigger homes over the past decade at very, very low financing prices. So, you know, you saw people that would have normally bought a $250,000 house but now we're buying five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar houses because the interest rates are so low and the payments were so comfortable to afford that it, it created all these um, issues, all of these uh, oddities in the financial system that needed to be corrected. So lo and behold, you know, once we start coming back from COVID, you know, we spend months with everything shut down, factories closed, car makers weren't making anything, oil got, you know, cratered. Now we have an economy that's roaring back with a lot of stimulus money, and now we have broken the relationship between supply and demand, and we have an inflation problem. But this inflation problem has been brewing for a decade. It's not new. And I think that the, the thing that people need to walk away with is that this too shall pass. We have gone through two world wars, almost ended the world with nuclear conflict, hyperinflation, you know, we, we've gone through a lot of things in investing history, and the stock market has just kept going on. It has a short-term dip, lots of volatility, and eventually we get back to normal and we keep growing. So I think that the, the, the first thing you need to think is, think about is, hey, look at this contextually. Calm down. Don't buy into the hype. Don't buy into the crazy talk you see in the news. Tune out that noise and make sure that you have a plan. As long as you have a plan of how you're investing, how you're creating income in retirement and all those things, none of what happens in the market day to day should affect you because that's what a plan is for. You should be affected by the market daily news if you're just sort of being tossed by the wind and you have no direction. That's usually what ends up happening. So I would say be smart. Create a plan, stick to your plan, because plans are most hard to stick to when crazy things are happening out there.
Now, that's kind of like the the high level of the stock market. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about cryptocurrencies, unless you have any other sort of thoughts or questions about yeah, well, that part. Yeah, I, I do want to maybe still look at that big picture item. You mentioned something that I, I haven't thought of before, but I want to follow up with a question that is more predictive in nature, which you may or may not want to go down this path. But if it is taken, let's just say 12 to 14 years for us to see the inflation that probably should have started kicking in back in 9, 10, 11, do we think that in six months it could be contained and brought back down to, quote, unquote, the ideal 2% that the Fed looks at? Or I, I happen to think that we could be in for a longer inflationary period than many, including politicians, would care to admit. In general, and this is not like, what do you think about it? But but I, I think it's going to take a little bit longer to get a handle on just because of all that's been pumped into the system. What are your thoughts? I think the main issue that we have right now is – uh, nobody can predict what any action by the Fed is going to do in the economy. So economic macro, microeconomics is a lot about experimentation. You don't really know what's going to work until it does or until it doesn't. So nobody can truly predict how long inflation is going to stay at the level that it is. The one thing I will say is the Fed has been very aggressive and has proven that it's willing to do whatever it takes to control inflation, even if it causes a recession. And and that is a very important attitude. And some people think that that is a negative thing because they can overcorrect. Uh, but when it comes to inflation running hot, you want to have an aggressive Fed on your side. That's how we actually got out of the hyperinflation of the 70s. Uh, and I say hyperinflation sort of exaggerated, you know, double digit inflation because, you know, hyperinflation happens, you know, thousand percent inflation in a year. But, you know, the high inflation period that we went through in the U.S. was addressed by a very aggressive Federal Reserve that was willing to do whatever it took to correct the problem. I think that we have a Fed that is willing to go far. Uh, so I think it's a matter of waiting. Uh, now, if I were to look at how inflation has responded so far based on what's happened this year, you know, we've had the highest and the fastest interest rate increases in all, in all history. And inflation has first stopped going up slowly then it stayed flat then it's starting to go down now as of the latest reports and it's working what the fed is doing you know pumping the brakes on the economy is working now if i look at recessions in u.s history usually we're looking at 18 to 24 months of recessionary environment until the economy sort of readjusts itself and gets back on track. If you look at so yesterday, for example, the moment the Fed said we're going to slow down the rate of or the the rate and the pace of increases, market jumps three percent. So now we're out of the bear market because we're less than fifteen percent loss for the year, and the economy is starting to look better. But then you know there are other issues. There's China. There's oil. You know the, the market is it's like. It's like being at the hospital and being connected to the to the heart monitor. There's, you know, the ups and downs, the ups and downs, the ups and downs. But it, you have to step back and look at it three, five, ten years to actually see the upward trend. <laughs> so that's the perspective that people need to have is that there's always going to be something that's going to cause the economy or the markets to falter. But it's about the long term perspective. Yeah, that's good. And, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love and I'm watching our time here to go into depth with. What you think about real estate? I converse about that in other areas, but cryptocurrency. You said you wanted to say something about that. I'm, I have definite thoughts and and uh, quite a bit of money involved with cryptocurrency too. So curious your thoughts on that. That would be, I think, educational. 
Well, in my perspective, you know, I, so I have, um, you know, as part of my own uh, professional background, so to speak, um, you know, I, I've, go, I've done studies on cryptocurrency, both infrastructure, currency, valuation, all that good stuff. Um, I think cryptocurrencies have a lot of potential, uh, you know, for the world economy. It, it just addresses certain issues that the traditional finance ecosystem does not or has not. Uh, I, I do think that people need to be really careful about how they enter into the arena uh, of cryptocurrency, especially with so many bankruptcies, frauds, you know, assets being stolen. Uh, but but here's one thing that I've noticed that makes me optimistic about cryptocurrencies in general. All of the actors that are built on this on these platforms may have issues, but the platform the platforms themselves have not broken. Right. If I look at the Bitcoin network, right, the Bitcoin uh, blockchain, nobody's been able to crack it yet in in a very long time. Now, a lot of the actors that are playing in this in this arena of brokering Bitcoin and changing and offering accounts and custodying, they've come and gone and there's been fraud. and But the actual system, the bedrock of the technology is still there. And I think that's really what has the most potential out of this. I think that if you were to fast forward 10, 20 years from now, a lot of the names that you see in cryptocurrency are not going to be there anymore. Probably many of the cryptocurrencies themselves are not going to be there. But the, but the technology is just as fundamental as the Internet was for our world in the 80s and 90s. I think it's just going to completely transform it. I just think people need to be really, really careful about the amount they put into it because it's such, if we're in the Wild West period with no regulation, lots of bad actors, highly complex technology that most people don't know how to figure out. And that's how people get hurt. So I urge caution. I don't, I don't ask people who don't know what they're doing to embrace it yet. Yeah, that, I I love the way you bring that up. It was interesting at a time of deep prayer. I was spending a lot of time with the Lord back in 2017. I literally felt a nudge that I just needed to learn more about this. And I felt as if the Lord said, you can't really learn it without participating. So we started acquiring some things and all. And I, I agree with you, boy, but you, we have to watch it because I think my gauge is we may be in about 1999 to the dot-com bust relative to what was going on with the internet that mm -hmm. a lot of the names that are out there now we won't see them a few years from now and maybe yeah. even the amazon of you know the internet hasn't even materialized yet which mm -hmm. means there's still a lot of ups and downs that's going to happen i think government's going to get involved and things like that so that's that's really fascinating and i appreciate you especially as a as a professional because a lot of professionals that have the licenses you have are pretty much saying, no, don't do it. I like, I like that you still have an optimism there because I do like the foundational technology of the blockchain. I do mm -hmm. think that there's going to be some significance there, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of people swimming around trying to take people's money, scam people, yeah. etc. which leads me into what I want to discuss here uh, over the next few minutes, and that is what has led you into what you do now, which you are a licensed professional that helps people with, uh, you know, the generational wealth, uh, the money management, things like that. Tell people that don't know what that is, what it is that you do. Well, people come to me because they have usually a set of problems that they need to solve. 
they have they such are busy. As, such as what are the problems? Uh, yeah, so so one of them is time, right? They're busy. Uh, they are good at what they do. They are professionals in their industries and areas, and they just don't want to spend hours upon hours figuring out this money thing. So that's usually the first problem that leads people to find an advisor. The second problem is, you know, the more senior you go in your career, the more complex your life becomes. You know, you get, you know, partnership opportunities, stock compensation, uh, the retirement plans that are offered to you start becoming more varied and complex because you're no longer a regular employee. Uh, you also start getting opportunities, you know, to participate in real estate and private investments and all kinds of things that end up uh, sort of crowding your radar. And you're like, all right, time out. I don't have the expertise in this. This is, this is very complex. My tax situation is getting out of hand. I need to have somebody help me figure out the picture. Uh, the, the other thing that people come to me uh, with is, hey, I want to retire in the next five to 10 years. And I'm, I want to do my early homework to make sure that I land this plane in the right, you know, in, in the right path. Uh, and then there are some people that come very close to retirement, say one, two years before retirement, say, hey, this is my last chance. You know, I am a year away from hanging my hat. How am I going to eat after I turn off the paycheck? Uh, so, you know, broad spectrum of needs. But if you were to sort of bubble all of that down, uh, people usually interact with me in one of three different ways. Uh, they come to me and they say, hey, Leo, I want you to create me a one-time financial plan so that you can help me figure out all these things. And then, hey, I'm going to walk away and do it on my own. I feel capable if you give me the information to go kind of go execute it. So that's one way. We come in, we help you figure out a set of problems, we package it nicely for you to consume, and then you go away and you do it on your own. Then I have people who come to me and say, hey, Leo, this is all awesome. I love what you did for me. But honestly, I don't have the time or the energy to execute this stuff. So I need your help to engage with me in an ongoing relationship uh, to help me figure out and coach me through that process and help me make these decisions. Uh, so those are more kind of like the, the ongoing relationship, you know, usually flat fee type engagements that I have with clients. And then some people say, hey, I've accumulated this money. I need everything that you're doing, but I also need help managing these investments and trading and rebalancing. And what do I invest my money into? And how do I create an income out of this? And then there's that, the, the investment management side of things. And, you know, the higher you go in that spectrum, the more we do for you. So, you know, supporting your estate planning efforts, you know, making sure that your tax returns are prepared well. Uh, so the more complexity and the more assets you have, usually the more services we provide because, you know, the, the, the need is there for us to be more um, helpful. So that's kind of like the at, at a high level how people work with me typically. Yeah, that's good. And why is it, um, listen, when you start talking about money mm -hmm. with people, this kind of goes back to our conversation at the beginning with Christians. You know, they many people will get advice from Uncle Bob. We just finished a holiday. We're coming into our holidays again. We're recording this. And Uncle Bob just seems to be the guy that knows or he says, hey, do this, do that. And we know kind of where a lot of that ends up. But why, and this is maybe me asking you to boast just a little bit, but why is it important to deal with someone who has that licensed professional tag uh, attached to them? Well, I think that beyond just being licensed or being a professional, uh, I think you need to look at the character of the people who are helping you. Mm -hmm. You know, in every profession, not just financial services, there are bad actors and people who are just bad at what they do. 
you know, there are doctors who are board certified and are terrible physicians. Uh, you know, there are lawyers that are, you know, licensed to practice law and they're just awful attorneys. <laughs> you know, so I think that that don't be deceived by a title, by a designation or by a license. It just means that they've met the requirements to be allowed by the state to do the thing that they say they're going to do. This is nothing about their quality. It just says that they are, they have met the requirements that the state feels comfortable letting you hang your own shingle. I think when it comes to advice, financial advice is one of those things where, and not every profession has this, right? You don't need a handyman that shares your values. You need a handyman that's good at being a handyman and fixing your things. I mean, of course, you want a trustworthy person in your home. You don't want to just bring anyone in. But in general, you don't need to have somebody that agrees with you on certain levels to be your handyman. Financial advice is very different because financial advice touches every aspect of your life. So if you don't share the value system of the person you're working with, uh, you're going to have a problem because this person is going to take you and guide you and provide you advice and wisdom that is not in alignment with where you want to go in life. And I think that's where you need to be very careful about who you take your advice from, whether it's a professional or non-professional. The other thing that people need to be aware of, especially in these informal situations with family and friends, is that you only hear what may have worked, but you don't hear what didn't. So you get, you're taking advice from Uncle Bob who tells you, oh, I bought this stock and I made $10,000 in this stock and I sold and I made a good, you know, I made a killing. But what Uncle Bob didn't tell you is that he just lost a hundred thousand betting on different stocks that he didn't know what he was doing. And you go take the advice of Uncle Bob, like Uncle Bob is this savant that, you know, that is a guru and knows exactly what they're doing when in reality they're only showing you the positive outcome without all the negative stuff that came along with that. Yeah. So I think that anytime you take advice from somebody, filter it. Even if it's from an advisor like me, like you need to understand, you know, there's no better filter than the scriptures. I have a little handy Bible here on my desk because I do a lot of work in my business with the scriptures. And hey, if somebody's talking to you, talking to you about something that just doesn't agree with this thing, your, you know, your flag should be going off all over the place. And be like, you know what? Thank you. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I like not only the scriptures, but just, I mean, listen, use some discernment, quiet time, prayer, pray. Mm -hmm. I, I really do think that the Lord will connect people that you need to be connected with and, and also let you know if someone maybe is someone you shouldn't interact with uh, mm -hmm. in that area. So I think that's good. I, last big topic I want you to talk about, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to mention these words and let you say whatever you want to before we start wrapping up and let people no, I'm going to I'm going to ask about a few categories of what people can do next before I finish up. But generational wealth. That's something that people a lot of people struggle with it. A lot of people don't even know what it means because of the way they were raised or what they see. And obviously, even when we add the Christian element to it, it creates even some more dynamics. But I'm going to give you just a few minutes to talk a little bit about it, because it's something that's all over your information. You mentioned it right when we started, so I want to kind of finish with this topic. So general generational wealth, what would you like to say about that? 
When I look at the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, where we're introduced to the story of the patriarchs, I see for the first time the emphasis on um, good long-term planning. And long-term is not 10 or 20 years. Long-term is hundreds of years. Right? When God was planning the story of, the, of that narrative of, of his people, uh, wealth played a role in it. Because guess what? It turns out that wealth is a, a necessity to do certain things in this world. Uh, and when I look at how Christians tend to manage money, and I'm talking about general population, right? There's many wealthy Christians that are great people and know exactly what they're doing. But general population looks at wealth as uh, something that is maybe a little dirty, maybe something to be a little bit ashamed of. And the concept of you passing down money just feels icky in the environment, political environment that we live in. But what we realize by studying the scripture, not the political manual of the day, but looking at the scriptures, is that wealth tends to be an outcome of wisdom applied consistently over time, and that wealth has a component that changes a family tree. So if you look at Proverbs, for example, speaks very plainly that a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children which tells you that wisdom, as part of all the great attributes that come with it, long-term planning is a big part of it. So you go through your life, you save, you invest, and then there are people out there, and if you're, you know, if you're listening to this and you're one of these people, please don't feel hurt or offended by what I'm going to say. But I've heard so many times that People just want to, they want to bounce their last check. They don't, they're not going to leave a dime for anyone. They're going to just use it, consume it, and enjoy it. And honestly, I feel like that goes against biblical wisdom because it shows that your desire with the blessings that God has given you in this life is hedonism, is to enjoy it and spend it. And there's nothing wrong with getting experiences and having a great life. You can have a phenomenal life. And you can also set up the next generation to be good stewards of God's blessings. And that's how we break the cycles of generational poverty, is by having that emphasis. And that's how we can have family, second, third, fourth generation doing things for the kingdom of God that they wouldn't be able to do if they had to start from scratch every single time. So that's why I think that generational wealth is so important. Yeah, that's good. And I love how you tied it into those that don't want to leave anything. You know, truthfully, it's a little bit selfish, truthfully. It's just you're thinking about yourself. And, you know, we didn't even get into, and we don't have to go into it now, but just the aspect of being a giver and, and not a taker and things like that. I do want to ask Leo where – I know you've got some resources probably available, but let's just say someone is kind of nudged and they want to get more info from you, what would you recommend them do? If there's any links or anything, we'll make sure it's included. But send people places if they just want more. Well, I think the first thing you need to do is go onto AbundantAdvisors.com and look at the sort of the wealth of offerings that I provide and get to know my personal story. I have information on my website about why I'm doing this, the types of people that I serve, and the types of things that I enjoy doing with my clients. So I think that's the first place to start, just theballandadvisors.com. Now, depending on where you are in your path, in your journey towards wealth, I think that there's a couple of different tracks that you can take. Uh, if you're just getting started and you are not really convinced that you understand what this whole thing means, but you're just interested in learning more about it, 
I have a free course available on my website. Uh, you go abundantadvisors.com forward slash quick start. And it's a quick way to get you initiated in some of the philosophical sort of foundations of managing money God's way. So it's free. You can log in. You can sign in. You know, you get access and you can take a look at the videos. Probably take you under 30 minutes to do it. If you are, you know, kind of in that building phase of your career, you haven't reached the point where your income and your complexity require an advisor to work with. Um, I also have a, 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 a more full-blown course offering uh, that you can also look at in our site. It's abundantadvisors.com forward slash course. And that gives you a really broad and very deep understanding of how to create your own financial plan so you can get started and get some traction. And then the third category, I would say the people who are already at a point in their life where their income is increasing, their complexity is increasing, you know, look at the offerings that I have for engaging as a client with my firm so that we can then take the next step and discuss creating a financial plan together. If you have assets that you need help managing, also figure out how to best invest those assets, both for your own um, purposes as far as retirement goes and all that, but also this whole conversation about generational wealth and how do we equip your family uh, to, to manage this well even after you're gone. Excellent, Leo. Thank you for those resources. We'll make sure all those are included so people can get to them easily, depending on where they're consuming what we're doing here. I, I prepped you for this. My final question, we're Seek, Go, Create. I'm going to give you one of those words to choose that resonates more with you or just means more to you at this stage. Seek, go, or create, which one you choose and why? Create. Uh, and the reason I choose that is I've been plugged in deeply recently with the faith-driven entrepreneur movement. And one of the things that has stood out to me out of the work and the speakers and the many people that are involved in this movement is that we have a unique talent uh, as, a, as humans uh, that God has created us with the ability to create things, uh, with the ability to add value and to create things that that change people's lives. And I encourage everyone who's listening to this to think about what is it that God wants you to create? Maybe your calling is not to be an entrepreneur and go create a company. Uh, maybe you don't necessarily have to even create a product. But what is it that God is calling you to participate in his creative work uh, to put out into this world so that other people can benefit from it. Mm, very nice. Beautifully said. I like that challenge to people, too, because I I agree. That was part of the words that we put in there, that we all are created to create. So thanks for that. If you've joined us, I know this has been a great conversation for you. I appreciate Leo providing all that he did and the wisdom and, and the resources and uh, I just want to encourage you to share this. I know that you know someone that needs to hear what we've talked about. So if you're on your podcast player or platform, whatever it is, take a screenshot or you could sometimes share it directly from there. If you're watching this on YouTube or on one of the social channels, just share it with someone. Because one of the things I think that's been a bit of a challenge, especially in Christian circles, is I hate to use the word ignorance, but we've just been ignorant about money. We just have not, have not because we've wanted to avoid it. We, you know, twisted scripture and we thought it's the root of all evil when it's not. But uh, so, so just share this. I think this is helpful for people to just hear conversations, relaxed 
educational conversations about money. So share it. We have new episodes every Monday, so make sure you're subscribed and listening in. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.